an address for screw tape in 1959 brought screw tape out of retirement um, to address American public education in particular. And really what he was concerned about was um, what happens when you have a democratic ethos uh, and it seeps into the educational system. And as a result, you tend to you can tend to hamstring your really gifted students um, and then you can elevate your more challenged students and put them on the same level because you don't want to make anyone feel bad, right? You have this sort of therapeutic approach to education. Lewis was analyzing this as far back as the 1950s in both American and English education. Um, and I think if we look back on the decades in between uh, now and then, we see that many of the things he was worried about have, uh, have taken root. The voice you heard there was that of Dr. Micah Watson. He is an associate professor of political science at Calvin College, also the William Spoolhoff Teacher Scholar Chair at Calvin. And uh, he was here as part of our Acton Lecture Series in February, and he's our guest today on Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it's my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast. Uh, as I said, this is, a, is an interview that was recorded in February. We've had it uh, waiting a, a window to... Uh, to be released here on, on an edition of the podcast, and here we are, and it is a great discussion. Uh, Dr. Watson was here as part of the Acton Lecture Series in February, delivering an address entitled C.S. Lewis versus Democracy. Now, that's an odd title if you're uh, an average American and you've kind of been uh, given the understanding that, of course, we live in a democracy. Well, we live in a democratic republic. We don't live in a democracy. Our founders were very suspicious of democracy, did not want to found a democracy, and founded a republic instead. Uh, and they did so in large part because democracy has a lot of very bad characteristics. And C.S. Lewis, uh, like our founders, understood that. And he was a, a very incisive critic and uh, spoke a lot about uh, the, uh, the ability of democracy and democratic uh, in inclinations to corrode away at the foundations of society. Uh, and that was what Dr. Watson talked about in his lecture. And in, in this podcast, we, we extended that discussion a little bit more. Specifically, uh, we started off talking about democratic education and the problems that come from democratic impulses that, that happen in, in the realm of education. Joining us on the podcast, uh, Dr. Jordan Baller, our Director of Publishing and a Senior Research Fellow here at the Acton Institute, and Dr. Pablo Nicelli as well, who uh, is our Director of Programs and education here at Acton. And so without further ado, let's move over to our interview with Dr. Michael Watson here on Radio Free Acton. Well, Micah, uh, thank you, first of all, for joining us on, on Radio Free Acton today. It's great to have you with us. And I want to start our discussion by honing in a little bit on the topic of education, uh, you talked a little bit about this in your lecture today uh, about C.S. Lewis and his views on on democracy and education. And I, I wonder if uh, if you could if you could bring Lewis uh, here with us today, or at least kind of try to try to extrapolate from your studies what what Lewis would think of our modern situation. What would Lewis have to say about uh, education, the state of education in the modern American republic here in in 2017? Yeah, um, yeah. He, he, so he wrote, and we talked about this in the lecture, he wrote uh, an address for screw tape in 1959, brought screw tape out of retirement um, to address American public education in particular. And really what he was concerned about was 
um, what happens when you have a democratic ethos, uh, and it seeps into the educational system. And as a result, you tend to you can tend to hamstring your really gifted students, um, and then you can elevate your more challenged students and put them all on the same level because you don't want to make anyone feel bad, right? You have this sort of therapeutic approach to education. Lewis was analyzing this as far back as the 1950s in both American and English education. Um, and I think if we look back on the decades in between uh, now and then, we see that many of the things he was worried about have, uh, have taken root. Micah, the title of your talk is Lewis versus Democracy, and it opposes the two. Could you talk a little bit about Lewis's more general concerns about democracy, and then where he ends up, in your view, with res- with respect to you know different forms of government and his evaluations of them. Yeah, sure. So Lewis uh, probably would follow what Winston Churchill said, which was that democracy is the worst form of all governments except all the others that have been tried. Um, he he distinguishes between democracy as government and democracy as culture. And it was really the latter that he was worried about. Once you have equality being seen as something good in and of itself, then that's a real problem. Uh, he saw equality as as necessary because of the fall. It's an instrumental means that's, a, that's necessary for the good life, but it's not the good life itself. Um, equality, thinking of equality as a good is like thinking of going to the hospital as a good. Going to the hospital is good because you get out of the hospital to do other things. And equality is necessary politically, and he even argued um, that we need more of it economically, but it's not good in the sense of thinking everyone's got to be the same. Um, that was really uh, what he was worried about. So he was a reluctant Democrat. In many of his stories, the Narnian Chronicles, for example, he's, he's a monarchist. He's got kings and queens, quite happily so. Um, he did say that if it weren't for the fall, uh, Robert Filmer, who was Locke's big adversary, would have been right that the best form of government would have been patriarchal monarchy. But we have fallen. And so because we've fallen, and here he's very much like Lord Acton, no one, no uh, human being can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. And so democracy, while not perfect, offers us some resistance to the abuse that can happen with monarchy and other forms of top-down political systems. Now, your book, uh, co-authored with Justin Dyer, C.S. Lewis on Politics and the Natural Law, you explore Lewis as a political thinker. Make the case for exploring him as a political thinker. Um, you just mentioned Locke. One of the really interesting chapters to me was your exposition of Lewis in Lockean terms or, you know, in contrast, comparison and contrast with Locke. Um, could you talk a little bit about Lewis as a political thinker? I mean, when, when, we, when I think of somebody like Lewis, you mentioned his, his you know, his latent monarchism that's throughout much of his writing. He's known as a medievalist. He's known right. as a, a lover of ancient um, philosophy or uh, knowledgeable in ancient philosophy. He's known as somebody who urges us to read old books. Right. Um, in what way is he ancient and yet also modern yeah. in his political thinking? So there's, there's two puzzles that have to be figured out with Lewis as he relates to politics. The first is that Lewis denied being interested in politics on several occasions, that his, um, his brother Warney, his stepsons, Walter Hooper, his secretary, all say that he wasn't interested in politics. Uh, and in one respect, that's absolutely right. He was not interested in the particular policy debates of the day, what tariffs should be set at, um, various you know, policy sorts of in-the-weeds discussions. Uh, but we argue in the book that that politics is not just about those things. Uh, and, and Lewis being an Aristotelian and, and a Platonist and this, you know, an advocate for these ancient thinkers would have seen politics as the business of the polis. And the business of the polis is um, centers around a, 
a conception or a vision of the good life. Uh, what's human nature like? Um, what does a flourishing life look like? What do we have to do to get that? Those are these deeper political questions, and Lewis had a great deal to say about those things. So that's one puzzle that we address. Uh, Lewis's writings are filled with ideas about human nature and good and evil and about power and authority um, in, in his popular writings and his scholarly writings. Uh, the other puzzle is, given that Lewis was such a fan of the medieval era and of Plato and Aristotle, why did he not choose a hierarchical conception of politics? And there, it's because he was pretty straightforwardly a Christian and believed in the fall. Um, again, this this idea from, from Acton and others that uh, you cannot give um, power, power corrupts. Uh, democracy offers some sort of protection against that, um, and, and I think he's, he holds to that reluctantly. I think ideally he'd love to be able to be a, a sort of monarchist, but he sees that as very problematic. Uh, it's gonna, and, and he's living on. He's living after democracy has been tried for several decades. Um, he's not terribly keen on the results, but he also things that gives a better shot for human flourishing than some of the other approaches. Yeah, you've got a great quote in your book, and I, I think you mentioned it in your talk, too, that uh, something to the effect of that uh, he's a Democrat because he doesn't think that any man should be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows, um, which sounds to me like a pretty robust understanding of original sin or what a Calvinist might call total depravity, depending on what you mean by that. Right. Um, could you say a little bit about Lewis's relationship with Calvinism, and because this is one of the really important points, I think, in the book. Um, I think one of the, the great things about Lewis as a political thinker and as a, a moral thinker is his advocacy, defense, and articulation of the moral order, the natural right. law. Um, and in this, he's among the minority of Protestants, I would say, in the 20th century in terms of the uh, on the theological side of things, for sure. So. Sure. Sure. Well, there, there are times when he's a little polemical with Calvin, yeah. and, and he overgeneralizes. Um, he, uh, I think many of, sometimes he has complaints about some of the Calvinists more than Calvin himself, and then he really doesn't like Karl Barth, and I think that he can lump those two in together, particularly with Barth's, um, you know, more or less hatred of natural law or, mm -hmm. or, or strong denunciation of natural law, at least natural law so-called. Um, though, though, as we know, Calvin did not denigrate the natural law, uh, and and Lewis um, I knew that. Um, I actually, uh, you know, we, we you and I both read a piece by Adam Barkman making this case that uh, Lewis is actually much closer to Calvin than um, than has been popularly thought of. Um, I think that there's a pretty strong correlation there. He does believe in total depravity, understood as everything being tainted as opposed to understood as being everything is as bad as it could be. Right. Um, which is the right way to understand it. Which the is, way, the, of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> I think of it as comprehensive corruption rather than total depravity myself, but I like alliteration, so. So what do you, what do you think about Lewis charting a path forward positively? I mean, I realize you don't want to sort of put words into his mouth. What would Lewis say about, say, the Department of Education today or whatever? Um, but in his vigorous, full-throated, multifaceted defense of the moral order uh, and human nature yeah. and the definition of that nature as being subject to God, in what ways does he chart a positive path forward for Protestant and broader, more broadly Christian, mere Christian social thought and political thought today? One of the things he recognized about, about British society was that it was post-Christian. And he was realizing this in you know, the 1930s and 40s. Uh, he called himself um, oh, a converted pagan living among apostate Puritans. Uh, I think I got that right. And so one of the things that we can learn, we Americans can learn is, uh, and we, are, we have been learning this particularly with regard to 
whereas sexual issues, moral moral issues of same-sex marriages, is we no longer have a Christian society. Uh, the first key to figuring out what you can do is to know where you are. And I think that's where Lewis is helpful, to self-diagnose. Um, we can no longer count on this idea of, of living in a majority Christian country in any meaningful sense. And then it's a matter of, well, what do, how do Christians live in Babylon, right? There's this, how do we live in exile? Not that we ever were really living in Jerusalem, that's also a bit of a myth, but um, what sort of practices do we need to be so intentional about with our own families and churches and communities that we aren't depending on a shallow cultural Christianity to hold us up anymore because it's just not going to be there. And I think Lewis offers us um, some tools to help diagnose that. And then I also think, um, in addition to the the straightforward rational apologetics, which I think are valuable, um, Lewis also impresses on us the need for imagination and stories and literature and narrative and being, uh, having our minds and our characters just swimming in the stories of the gospel and the Bible and also how those get manifested in, in, in good literature. Christian literature and non-Christian literature, but particularly Christians doing things like this um, and shaping our the way that we think. I think I think those are the sorts of things in education um, th- that are that we're going to find some helpful things from Lewis on. You know, Micah, I was struck um, while you were talking this afternoon and 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 listening here as we have this conversation how close uh, how closely C.S. Lewis is thinking about politics, government. Uh, the polity, our role in society, um, would uh, would work well with the American founders. Um, not agreement on everything. They didn't even agree with each other on everything, but lots of fundamentals there. And um, especially as you describe his problems with democracy, the ethos of democracy, not the form, but the ethos, the spirit that animates a society when it's considered democratic, is it ruins education, it, it uh, um, makes it so we don't want to use reason anymore. We want to use our feelings. Right. Um, it uh, assumes the people are infallible, whatever the people means. There's just this uh, vague notion of the people and then whatever they want, uh, which, of course, leads to mob rule. And then um, we uh, democracy makes us emphasize practicality uh, and, and getting things done in a, in a practical way over uh, ancient wisdom. And, and whatever, you know, we know that from our forebears have, uh, has worked. That can give you a, a very good description of what today looks like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure everybody listening today and people that will read this book will think about, well, my gosh, he wrote this because Trump's elected. <laughs> but actually, uh, I, I don't think that's—it has, it has little to do with one person and much to do with populism generally— uh, which is something that grows out of democratic notions. Right. We've had it before. We've had two or three speakers here this time already that have talked about, you know, populism is not new. Ben Dominich talked about that. Um, and and what I reflect on when I think about that, um, because uh, I share some of your experiences as a professor. I've had those experiences before and seeing who's coming into the classroom um, and dealing in politics. I, I work in that as well. There are a lot of people that do emote and they don't reason. There are plenty of people that uh, are very resentful that anybody would presume to be better than them. Um, there are lots of people that put practical wisdom over any kind of uh, practical uh, practicality over wisdom. Um, but they didn't do that to themselves. Uh, they didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be this way. Right. This is a product of our churches not doing their jobs, I think. Uh, I'd, I'd like your comment on this. This is a job of uh, government behaving the wrong way. This is a job of education, perhaps being in the control of government. To what degree, when you look at uh, the critique C.S. Lewis would give, 
what's the individual's fault and what's society's fault, and then how do we start trying to repair that problem? Well, that's a $20 million question. Billion. We've Billion, spent, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> probably trillions by now on that question. Yeah, yeah so I, we inherit... Um, we inherit our families, we inherit the water we swim in, and it's hard to know. I don't know what the answer to that is in terms of what percentage or how to break that down. Um, clearly, at some point, we become responsible for our own, uh, our own character. But the, re- you know, the reason why the ancients that Lewis read and loved and the reason that Lewis was so emphatic about the importance of education was because you're giving, by, by the education you're giving children the, the cards that will be the hand that they're dealt, right? So that's why he writes The Abolition of Man. He starts off by criticizing this elementary school English textbook because he thinks it's giving these, these terrible ideas that are going to result in bad character. Um, so I, I think he's looking at it on a macro level and saying we are in big, big trouble. Um, and, and it may be the case that, uh, I mean, he says in a letter that only a, a power higher than us can get us out of this. Um, at, by the end of his career, he's, he says, I'm, I'm, in, I'm at my wit's end about what these problems, um, how they're going to be solved. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm in any better spot uh, as to how to solve them on the macro level. I think what we have to do is, as Christian communities is look at the, uh, well, we have to look at the hand that we're dealt. Some of us are in positions where we can influence folks. Some some of us do do podcasts, uh, or we teach in a classroom, or we serve in the public sector, and there our responsibilities are a little bit different. But most of us are going to be moms and dads. Um, we're going to be involved in our schools, and there I think we have to take the domain that God's given us, and we we work to provide something different um, for our kids than what our culture is going to provide them, which is going to be just a uh, well, it can be just an egalitarian, technocratic um, education that's going to be, you know, how, how to make as much money as possible for as least amount of work as possible and just get the bigger house and eventually retire and golf and die. Um, pretty sad gospel, and I'm probably being unfair a little bit, but we can do something different depending on the level of responsibility that we have. Well, it strikes me when I think about that, there are churches can fix the reason versus feeling problem. Uh, they can certainly fix the uh, we're infallible problem, or teach to it anyway, uh, and and lifting up ancient wisdom. But I think immediately of homeschooling. I think yeah. of classical schools. I think of all of these schools that got founded specifically to deal with this kind of problem. Um, and and the first time I ever read C.S. Lewis, um, I was a young man in a Christian school, and C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. Right. Uh, were big deals to our Christian school teachers. They were graduates of Wheaton and places like that, and um, they it radically changed my life. I'm doing. I'm sitting here talking to you two on this podcast because they taught me those things, and it made it. Eventually, it mattered to me. It didn't until I got into grad school, really. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I well, decided I wanted fun for a while, maybe. <laughs> well, the other, the other thing is, I mean, um, you know, Calvin graduates students who go out and they do teach in those Christian schools and teach in Christian college. We also graduate students who go out and teach in the public schools. And for as long as we continue to do that, we need to do that as well. Um, and I think that's a great, I mean, it's almost a mission field now. Are those teachers' hands tied about how much they can be themselves? Yes. Are there sometimes openings where we can change a policy here or there on the state or federal level? Well, particularly now, yes. Betsy and, DeVos and, is on the way. You know, so we should have we should, we should should have those arguments, right? We should... Uh, see what happens on those those macro levels, and see if we can't find carve out little spaces um, to reintroduce um, oases of excellence and character and and um, 
and allow teachers to be who they are and teach students. So, I, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. There's um, what's missing. What struck me when you met at the church is, you know, one of the things that they say about Jesus when he taught is he, he taught as one with authority, and and the people noticed. So, what if some of our what if some of our churches and many already do this, but what if, what if they started teaching with more authority, right? We resist. The, our democratic ethos has seeped into even the church, and we resist the notion that our pastors have authority over us and that our elders have authority. The book of Hebrews says, obey your leaders, which we Americans tend to, well, we're just going to go to the church two blocks down. Right. right. Well, what if we really— The, the church shopping culture. Yeah. What right. if we really thought that, no, my pastor is teaching this, and that means, gosh, I have to look at the Scripture, and I do have to—I mean, I do have to look at it and see if he's right, but I, I need to take that as authoritative and, and, and do it. Um, so yeah, I think the churches can play a huge role in that. One of the things about Lewis's educational vision, why it's so important, um, is because that is, and you alluded to this earlier, Micah, that that's the way that you escape the myopia of your generation, right? Right. So reading old books is like opening a window into a musty room, and yes. the breeze can come through, and you can see that they have lots of problems, some of, you know, the perennial human problems, but their problems in many cases were different. And they had many ideas about things that were better than ours, so it ref- it refines this sense of being at the end of history, the moral superiority of the people because we're so advanced. Right. Um, and you can realize, well, that they were they were smart people lived back then too. <laughs> right. right. So there's a certain generational humility. You know, you opened the talk today with the, with the quote from Chesterton about the democracy of the dead. Um, there's a sense in which, f- including the democracy of the dead on the one hand, and focusing on the future generations those that are with us right now in school, but those that will come along later. Um, it's a comprehensive vision of humanity intergenerationally, and justice needs to be done to them too. Yes. So there's a democracy of those who are not yet here or are here but not yet able to vote or here but not yet you know, adult citizens. Um, can you say just a little bit more about what Lewis thinks about doing justice to those generations? Yeah, well, he, I think he would say that our— our time is not just the particular years that we have. We are connected to those who came before and the, to those who come after. He, he talks about this when he talks about technology. The contraception, for example, is uh, living human beings exercising power on those who even will be will be or won't be born. Um, so he, he would see um, because he has a he has an eternal point of view, right? Um, that we do have responsibilities to our brothers and sisters who came before, who we will see again. And those who have not yet been born, who we will someday see again, right? So I, I think that's very much in line with his very Christocentric um, approach to things. Who was it that gave the famous quote, um, when someone says, we don't have to read all those old books or study those old people, we know all that, and the response is, and they're precisely what we know. That's who we know. Why wouldn't you want to know? We are talking with Micah Watson, uh, the, uh, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Calvin College, the William Spoolhoff Teacher Scholar Chair at Calvin. And uh, Micah, tell us a little bit about uh, the book, uh, C.S. Lewis on Politics and the Natural Law. I see it available here on Amazon. Yeah, so a couple years ago, um, I got to be on a panel at the Henry Symposium at Calvin College with Justin Dyer, and he presented a paper about Lewis and Bart. If you are interested in Bart and C.S. Lewis, uh, we have a chapter there, and that, that chapter came out of, of this uh, presentation Justin gave, and he and I 
hit it off, and, and he invited me to join him in this project. Um, the book looks at Lewis, makes the case that he was a political thinker that we should read. Uh, and then we go through and look at some of the different um, components of his political thought, both very philosophical, the grounding of reason. We engage with uh, thinkers like Thomas Pangle and, and um, different authors. And then also just the nuts and bolts of his political views. Uh, why wasn't he an Aristotelian or a Platonist? Uh, we argue that he was a kind of a classical liberal in the mold of John Locke with a little bit of John Stuart Mill thrown in. And then we get into the nitty-gritty of some actual policy, uh, marriage, public schools, uh, even things like gay rights, um, different aspects of Lewis's thoughts, and then how it related to his faith. So it's kind of an overview of, um, kind of you know, the, the architecture of his thought about reason and politics and government and all those things. It was interesting to me during your lecture when you said that uh, he, he professed to not like politics and the people that he knew said he hated politics. Right. And yet it, it's so obvious in his writings that there's so much that's it's on his mind yes. clearly. I mean, over and over again, and it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. You're just, uh, you, you've, you've stated a position or stated some principles uh, in spite of the fact that you dislike the topic. Yeah. It, the, it, it is entirely possible to have an antipathy towards politicians and politics and yet still be interested in politics. And I think that describes Lewis pretty well. That describes uh, actually a lot of modern America. If, <laughs> if, if it comes right down yeah, to it. True. Uh, Micah, thank you so much for being with us today. The lecture was fascinating. It's uh, it's it's one of those that has left me uh, with a lot of uh, a, a lot of things to think about, a lot to chew on today. Uh, Jordan, Paul, thank you so much for sitting in with us today, and uh, appreciate all of your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the close of this edition of Radio Free Acton. I want to offer my thanks once again to Dr. Micah Watson. Associate Professor of Political Science and the William Spoolhoff Teacher Scholar Chair at Calvin College here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, also the home of the Acton Institute. Uh, thank you so much, Micah, for joining us. And the book uh, that you heard referred to uh, during the podcast a couple of times is called C.S. Lewis on Politics and the Natural Law, and it's available at Amazon.com. You can find it right there by Micah Watson and Justin Dyer. Uh, and based on the discussion today, I think there's going to be a lot of good food for thought in that book. And hopefully uh, you'll share this podcast with other folks as well who might be interested in uh, diagnosing some of the problems of modern society and seeing if there's a way to help uh, help fix them, help cure some of the ills of modern society. Uh, and uh, Micah Watson, thank you for, for being with us and working so hard to do just that uh, in your work at Calvin College. Uh, thanks as well to Jordan Baller, who uh, joined us today. Jordan is our director of publishing here at the Acton Institute, and he is also a senior research fellow. And Paul Bonicelli, of course, uh, kind of a regular here on the podcast. We always enjoy having you down here in the studios, Paul. He's our uh, director of programs and education at the Institute. Uh, and please do, uh, if you uh, have not done so already, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And uh, check out the Acton website. Acton.org is the address. Uh, all the information that you could ever want about Acton and our programs and activities, as well as the Acton Power Blog, which is a fantastic resource if you're looking for news or information, some commentary. Uh, from an Acton perspective, that's a great place to look. Uh, you can find that directly at blog.acton.org, or you can just go to the homepage, acton.org, and look under the Publications tab. We also have a full multimedia archive. Dr. Watson's talk on C.S. Lewis is part of the uh, Acton Lecture Series from February. That's archived right there. You can go and check that out for a little bit more of a comprehensive look at Lewis, not just on education, but uh, on all of society and democracy. It was a great talk, and I'd encourage you to check it out. 
Uh, in the meantime, we're going to call it a day here at uh, Radio Free Act. And thanks so much for joining us. We will talk with you again on future editions here on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Have a great day, everyone. We'll talk to you later. Bye.